Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Christopher Scott Cooper. And if you're not familiar with Chris, Chris is a very diverse engineer. He has done a lot of work in live sound, in the studio, acoustic design, system design, and a whole bunch more. And he's based out of the Bay Area. And in this chat, we have a great conversation about his experiences in working in live sound, and especially around the concept of how live sound can also translate to the studio. And as you'll hear in this interview, there was definitely a lot of crossover. And Chris shares some great tips as far as working fast, both live and in the studio, adapting to new rooms and new environments so that you can quickly train your ears to feel comfortable in a space. And we also get into the conversation of diversification, because like I said at the beginning, Chris definitely has diversified his skills a lot. He works with lots of different genres of music. He has lots of services that he offers. And I think he offers a great perspective on why diversification is so important for up and coming engineers. And if you're trying to break into this industry and you're trying to keep busy and have enough work, well, Chris's advice here, I think, is going to help you out a lot. So you're definitely going to want to listen to it carefully. And I highly recommend that you actually act on this stuff that he talks about here. So with all of that said, let's just jump right into the interview. This is Christopher Scott Cooper. Christopher Scott Cooper, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background and all the amazing stuff that you do, can you give us that story of how you got into music and all the cool stuff you're doing? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I've been a guitar player since I was about five, seriously, since I was about 10. And that's sort of what drove all of this is uh, writing and composing. And like all kids in the 70s, we were listening to all our favorite bands on vinyl. And I was like, "Ooh, that is so cool sounding. How do I do that? How does how does that happen? And in the 80s, I, you know, was in and out of bands, not terribly good uh, bands, but in and out of bands and playing and people started saying, hey, you know, the sound system's not working, and I'm a fairly mechanically inclined individual, so I figured out how things work, and next thing I know, people are hiring me to do sound, and I'm going on tours, and I'm doing things, and I was like, I have no formal training, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, and I learned by banging my head against a piece of concrete, you know, it's like I had no mentors, no teachers, so I kind of learned the hard way. And in the late 80s, I got tired of that. I got burnt out of being away from home, you know, touring, loading heavy gear constantly. And I really had always wanted to be, you know, a recording engineer, a producer, and a mixer. And and I sort of moved toward the studio. I had a four-track cassette recorder at home, the classic Tascam. And then gradually went up to a Tascam 688, which was an 8-track cassette machine, which, by the way, for those who don't know, that was actually a fantastic machine. And at the same time, I interned at a studio I had done a demo at. And three weeks after starting the internship, the owner uh, came to me and said, uh, studio's closing, but I'm going to be going to another big studio that I will be manager at. And would you, why don't you come over there and intern? So I went to Music Annex. A uh, five-room facility with four recording studios, mastering suite, um, dubbing station suite, and and eventually also CD replication suite, which became Disc Makers later on. Uh, 
Oh, wow. And, um, and that was the beginnings of that. Within a year, I was engineering. And when I left 13 and a half, 14 years later, I was chief engineer, very brief tenure as chief engineer. And I decided to go independent. I did the very thing I said I would never do, build, <laughs> manage, and run a recording studio. <clears throat> and it's now been 19 years as of last month. So, yeah. That's amazing. There's a whole bunch to unpack from that that I'd love to dive deeper with. Um, first, starting off with the with kind of how you jumped into this originally, and you said you did live sound, and you had no real experience with it. You were just kind of figuring it all out as you go. Now, I feel personally that live sound is one of the scariest things to jump all in on because, <laughs> you know, it's it's a, it's that thing where, like, if the band sounds great, then everyone praises the band. But if the band sounds awful, they, you know, it, it, it's always on the sound guy, not the band pr- performing poorly or anything like that. Right. It, it's always it, there's always a, that 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 pressure on the sound guy. So did you did you feel that going into it? And uh, what was your experience like learning it all on the fly like that? Uh, it was pretty grueling. Um, and. Uh, things were kind of moving pretty fast in those days. So, uh, you know, it was a different time uh, than it is now. And interestingly, I actually came back to live sound about 15 years ago. Kind of, you know, I continued doing it all along, but it was because the times were different and because bands were kind of struggling to get through, you know, it was the everybody in a van, everybody drives, everybody trades off and drives, and you go and do shows. And you never knew what kind of a sound system you're going to or deal with. You know, you just kind of did what the best you could. And the key takeaway always for me from those days was no feedback. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the bottom line rule uh, that I had. But um, it was hard. And when I went over to the studio side and kind of got a different perspective, I began to realize all the things I did not know. And that was that was a kind of an eye-opening experience. Gotcha. What kind of things were you noticing at that point? Well, I began to understand phase relationships and timing relationships and, uh, you know, EQ and compression. Those are things you can learn by rote, but understanding what sound does in an environment and why it's doing what it does. And also understanding that you may not have control over that, um, is, you know, kind of critical. Um, and that really altered. It's still actually in many ways, uh, especially with digital. Now there are many aspects of that, that, a lot of people don't get and it's it's really crucial to understand what's going on in the time domain and in the phase domain with sound in a live environment absolutely yeah definitely in the studio you can hear things a lot more microscopically you know and and all those fine details come through a lot more too so it does force you to get a little bit more critical with your positioning and everything you talked about there like the phasing and all that kind of stuff because yeah, you're definitely hearing the effects of it a lot more. And yeah. and also, you know, a band's listening back to themselves and expecting it to be of a certain quality as opposed to being in the moment performing for a crowd. They're not even noticing if if it sounds good live or not. They just, you know, I mean, they know what their stage volume sounds like, I guess. But they don't have that perspective and they're on stage. And, and I will say that live sound is the best mixing trainer there is because <laughs> <laughs> you will learn how to mix very quickly. Um, even now, you know, I often walk in and I may not necessarily know how things are going to sound, but I've already got a, a pre-set up EQ curve and things that are going on. I've spent a little time in the room. I've spent a little time on the console because digital consoles are a bit more complex than the old days where everything was right in front of you. But, um, to your point about, you know, live sound being different than studio, the, the reality of that now is that we're making live sound like studio. It's true. I mean, it's. 
it's pretty amazing. I have a good friend, Robert Scoville. He's kind of considered the top front of house guy in the world. And he's out with uh, Kenny Chesney right now. And man, you know, he was with Rush and Tom Petty for 30 years. And this guy, he has it down. It's his shows are you recordings of them through a cell phone sound amazing. <laughs> That's the real test. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really it, it kind of is. And he's really pushed that, you know, studio vibe in the live world to to its capability, which is very cool. I love that. Yeah, I love how you put it that like live sound is the best way to learn how to mix. And I totally agree. You know, I think that there's there are definitely a lot of skills that are different, but there is a, a lot of crossover, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Like, how, did you feel like there was enough crossover to to make that switch comfortably or was it was it like completely new? Well, in the 80s, I'd, I would say no, it was it was it, that was why it was so eye opening to me to move into the studio world and start really spending time there. I mean, I had a small studio at home and I actually did a few projects that I recently transferred and was kind of amazed at how good they sounded. I was very shocked by that, to be honest. Um, that transition in those days, because live sound was still a, a developing science and a developing art form, it was still pretty rudimentary. It wasn't until kind of the late 80s that things started kind of coming together in a new way for live sound. But it's interesting always to me to talk to some of the guys that, you know, were doing sound in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, talk about slam, bam, thank you, man. We get away with whatever we can do. <laughs> you know, it was true sound reinforcement. Most of it was coming off the stage. Whereas these days, it's kind of the opposite. You know, the stage can be actually fairly quiet except for the drums and, you know, maybe a few guitar amps. It's actually fairly quiet up there now. And you don't, you don't have to compete with that in a, in at least in a larger venue. In a small venue, you, you still have that to a degree. And understanding that has not changed since the days when I started. So, Yeah, for sure. So then when you say that it's the best way to learn how to mix in the studio, you know, what, what is it about that live sound experience that you, that you believe that? You got three seconds to get the sound going. <laughs> and, and you know, a lot of people, there's a thing, there's a term, and uh, Scoville and I have talked about this at length. There's, there's passive mixers and there's active mixers. I'm an active mixer. I sit and ride faders constantly. I, you know, I, once I figure out what's going on with a song, if I don't know the band or the song, I work on writing levels. I work on changing EQs from song to song. I work on changing reverbs. And some people just do a setup and stand there, you know, and they may bring a vocal mic up or down a little bit, but that's it. And <clears throat> that's kind of the difference uh, is if you really want to get good at live sound, you have to become an active mixer and understand what's going on, understand what the needs are. And it's music dependent, it's band dependent, it's performance dependent, it's venue dependent. And it's never, even the same venue, same band on a different night is going to be completely different. So you have to learn how to adapt and you got to learn how to do that in seconds. You have to kind of get it together. Most people will notice that, you know, the first song out of a band live or even maybe the second is a little kind of messy. And then it comes together because even though you may do a sound check beforehand, it's in an empty room and now you have people in there and things change. Plus the band comes out and I can guarantee you they're going to play playing a lot louder. They're going to be going at it a lot harder than they did during sound check. So it's understanding things like that. And that helps you to understand what you need to do mix wise, what to prep for in advance. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I totally agree just from my own experience as well, doing live sound and going into the studio as well. It's like 
live sound it, it like you said you got three seconds to make a decision and it's got to be the right decision hopefully you know <laughs> or at least at least not a disastrously bad decision you know where you're getting that feedback um so it does force you to work quite work fast and and when you take that to the studio i think artists appreciate that you know artists appreciate speed in the studio and not having to wait around for an engineer to patch things in and get all set up and whatever, you know, it makes their session, it keeps those creative juices going. And, you know, it also just makes it so that you can earn more money per hour. You know, <laughs> like you're not just like, you're, you're not just like, you know, draining on a session and, and you're making it st stretching it out as far as you can go and all that, you know. Well, you also have the clock of, you know, hourly session rate going on too, which is your, you know, you have to keep an eye on that depending on the kind of deal you've worked with a client. Uh, fortunately, with my own studio um, and kind of the weird trend that has occurred for me in the last few years as a mixer is clients aren't here, which is kind of weird. Um, I, I actually like having the client here toward the end of a mix session, not so much at the beginning because they can they can be a little meddlesome uh, and I need to do some basic things to get it up and going. And I don't like to discourage anyone to not come to a mix session. Um, but not having the client here now affords me the time to, you know, if I feel like something is bothering me and I don't want to deal with it right now, okay, let's move over to something else. I'll come back to that, you know, and I can get up the next morning and review my mixes and see where I'm at. And, and that's a nice luxury. It is a luxury. So for sure, I do enjoy that. Yeah. But you know, under pressure, yes, I can still do it. I still do live sound now. And often, uh, these days, mostly what I'm doing is houses of worship, fairly large ones. And that's, you know, that's always a question mark as to what you're going to get when you come in. So you may have talented people intermixed with amateurs and you may have all amateurs, or you may have what a drummer friend of mine calls jangle fest, which is five guitars and, you know, a bass and, and drums and that, yeah, that doesn't always work well. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So then as far as that speed side of things goes, you know, what kind of steps are you taking maybe before the show starts to make sure that your live performance and your live mix goes smoothly? Well, one thing that I do is, um, you know, we have a funny phrase in the live industry, uh, high pass filter is your friend. Um, and high pass filters are your friend in the live world because there are very few things that you really need content below 80 hertz on, you know, bass, kick drum, uh, maybe a synth. Uh, you don't need that stuff on a vocal and you don't need that stuff on certain aspects of a drum kit. You don't need that on a guitar, you, you know. So the, knowing what your instrumentation is and how you're going to set up, it, immediately I go through and that cleans a lot of mud out. The secondary thing I, is that, you know, from years of doing this, I kind of know the frequency bands that I need to uh, attenuate, you know, to to make clear out additional mud. You know, I know what I need to do on a bass. I know what I need to do on a kick drum. You know, it'll vary a little. It'll also vary on the player, but I'll start at a point that I know is pretty consistent in those instruments. And learning those kind of uh, key things will help you to understand relationships between instruments. Uh, especially when you have um, really large setups. So I do, a, uh, for many, many years, I was doing an Easter celebration in a 3,000-seat auditorium with a full band, and like an eight-piece band, a mini orchestra, a choir, and six singers, plus speakers who would come out and talk, plus playback content. That's a lot of stuff. And it's it's complex when everybody's going. 
you know, it can get really deep really fast. So knowing what to do with the string sections and knowing what to do with the choir and knowing what to do with the various band, you know, just starting there, even before I, even before the first sound comes out of the system, I know kind of what I need to do EQ wise to at least get that rolling. Then I can fine tune, you know, I can go through and go, oh, well, okay, I need a little more of this or... I think I need to move the high pass up to about 150, you know, and really kind of pull out some mud from somebody's vocal that's a bit, you know, they have a nice deep voice, but um, figuring out how to make that deepness translate without becoming mud is kind of the trick. And that's, that's always, there's always something new to be thrown at you for a curveball to learn some new technique. So for sure, that's the kind of thing that you pay attention to. I love it. And, but, and I love how you put it that you, you kind of know, just through your experience, like which which kind of frequency ranges to pay attention to and, you know, applying these high pass filters. So are you typically using like a, a template to start your mix to get up and running? If I can, yes. Um, most of the time with like the big shows where I know what the console is and I know what I'm going to be doing. Um, yes, I'll have a template pre set up. I'll actually set it up in the days before and create, you know, a setup. This is one of the things that's just incredibly wonderful about digital consoles is it doesn't matter what console I'm on. I've worked on quite a few of them. I have template setups for a lot of them. I have tracks that I've saved that I can just move in and, and do a little pre-setup. So now it, you know, it took some time initially to get that set up, but now that it's done, it's pretty easy for me when somebody says, Oh, you know, you're working on a Digico SD 10 tonight. You need to, to do that. I can go in and do a setup and get something going as long as I have accurate information. And therein lies the rub is that it's never always accurate (laughs) and subject to change upon arrival. So, you know, you have to, you have to be prepared for that kind of thing. So you have to have options handy. For sure. And I'm assuming that because you're using these templates now, that gain staging plays a big role in that to make sure that you're consistent with every show, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's and that's always even for me now, that's uh, that's always a time I something I spend time on because um, perspective is everything. So you can get buried in working on something, you know, like, okay, I have a string section. I'm working on that. Well, my focus has been on those instruments and that thing. And now I have to step back and change my perspective to the whole picture and go, oh, wow, those are kind of loud. <laughs> you know, I need to bring those down. Or, wow, those are really getting buried. And why? You know, so, yeah, that's it. Perspective is always the thing that will place your gain staging and understanding what's going on. And I tend to start kind of low. I don't. I don't, uh, I don't push it up, um, especially in the digital domain. One of the things that I'll be honest, a pet peeve I have is people who record right at zero digital DBFS. And that, that is so wrong. There is no reason to ever go near that. Your range should be somewhere between minus 12 and minus three, you know, kind of thing. So, and, and I see that a lot. Um, in on digital consoles, that's even worse because if it's a lesser expensive console, it may not be forgiving. Um, this is actually one of the nice things about 32-bit floating point is those consoles that have that is that they actually float the bits depending on the volume and the content. So that's really cool because that prevents overload a lot of times and can really save a recording or save a live show. And that that development in the last five years is just, oh, man, even in the studio recording, I'll record at 32-bit because, you know, if you're working with jazz players, they have pretty extreme dynamics. So mm-hmm. 
or an orchestra for that matter, which has the most extreme dynamics. I mean, they can go really quiet and really loud very quickly. So for sure. Well, that, that's an interesting point that you brought up, because I, I feel like that's a question I get asked all the time is like, what level should I be setting my tracks up at? And so you said you typically aim for like minus 12 to minus five, like in, in that range there. Yeah, somewhere in there. I, I tend to find a, a hit the, for me personally, I tend to kind of hit somewhere in the minus three to minus six range if I can, unless it's a really dynamic instrument. Um, then I will give myself a little more headroom and make sure that I've got room in case they get really loud. Because as I say, often during live and in the studio, when you're kind of dialing in sounds and getting stuff, it's not the same way they're going to play when it comes to time to perform. They may put more energy into it and the level, I can guarantee you the level will be louder. That's just, that's through years of experience, that's what I see consistently. I think it's important to clarify too, when you say that those levels, are you talking about like your average level or are you talking about peak level? Uh, peak level, because your average, you know, as I said, it may depend on the instrument. So for me, peak is, I never go above minus three. Gotcha. I hang it there and, and stay in that range. And even when I'm mixing and gain staging out, um, that's, it's an arbitrary level in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the old days when an analog console gain structuring was a slightly different animal because not necessarily a problem to push a analog console input. You might actually want to do that to kind of get a little color and harmonic content, but you had to be careful about that because you could push it beyond a point where it would start clipping. In the digital domain, you don't have that option. And that's one of the reasons why the 32-bit floating point is so much nicer, because that's basically what that is. It allows for a bit of headroom and a little a little more bit depth when content is a little louder and you can avoid kind of getting a nasty, harsh sound. Yeah, I love it. That's great. Yeah, you know, I think that on the concept, on the, on the topic of like bit rate and all that stuff, that's something that a lot of people don't know, you know, what to set their stuff at and, you know, what the benefits are to that, right? So... I think the way you described it about 32 is definitely um, helpful for people to understand that like, yeah, there's, there is a, there's a reason why people are moving to that, that sort of setup because it it can be very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I taught for four years at Cogswell college in San Jose teaching both live sound and recording and um, making uh, young people who are really interested in this understand the technical aspects of this, which, you know, it took me many years to learn this too, um, is really critically important to digital recording because to understand that you may have 96,000 bits per second, but somewhere in there, a couple of those bits are peeking over and clipping. And that's, you know, FS, full scale. That's seeing the actual peak level. And one of the reasons why uh, full scale peak limiters have become popular in the digital world now is because they actually take an account for that. They're fast enough that they can pick individual bits. And if the bit goes near the clipping or over, it will attenuate it. And so that it doesn't. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand about digital is there's a lot going on in the background that you, you will never see. You can't see. It's way faster than we can interpolate as human beings. And to understand that, you need to you need to understand the science behind it and what's going on. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's, you're absolutely right. There's so much going on behind the scenes and a lot of it, we don't necessarily need to be thinking about in the moment or like overanalyzing, but, but there's, there's a lot going on and you know, it's, it's, it's important to at least know your starting points with a lot of it, just so you can get up and running and, you know, focus on a lot of the bigger picture stuff. But then once you understand the big picture stuff and how to get 
like, you know, your, your performances and your miking and all that kind of stuff, like going a little bit deeper can help you get a much better understanding of how you can optimize your recordings even more. Well, the, the initial setup and allowing and forgetting about it is kind of, as you say, you know, it's not something you should be having to pay attention to if you're aware of it and you set up initially, then it's no longer a concern for you. You won't have to deal with it during your session. And that's kind of, that goes back to your question about what do you do as a pre-setup to things is exactly that, is in gain structure or in the settings of a compressor or in the settings of an EQ or settings of any kind of processing that's going on. Uh, you know, setting it up so that you're aware, okay, here are the extremes and how do I sort of get it to ride in the middle without doing something I don't want it to do at an extreme point? Well, another question I wanted to ask you pertaining to live sound, but also to the studio, is that in live sound, you're constantly adjusting to new environments. And, and as you said earlier, like the day itself can change the sound of a, of a room. So you're you're constantly adapting to that new environment and calibrating your ears to that new space. Um, so what what advice would you give to people who are maybe working out of new spaces, whether they're doing it in a live setting or maybe they're just starting off in a home studio and are trying to figure out their room? What advice would you give to someone in that situation to help them with learning their room quickly so that they can feel comfortable in their new in their space and trust the acoustics of it? Wow. You know, um, I think about this a lot because it's not an easy question to answer. Um, because every space is different. Um, the key, I think, in terms of acoustics is to actually learn a little bit about the physics of sound and what it does. There's some very simple things about room acoustics that can that are true no matter where you go, um, such as a very simple rule is low frequency collects in corners. That's what it does. It There's a node in every corner, and that's that's not just vertical corners, that's horizontal corners too and understanding what it's doing there and what happens with high frequency and the fact that it moves way faster than low frequency doves, which is a big long wave. So there's some basic, basic things that you can learn there in terms of what sound does that can help you to understand. When the room gets more complex and it's really odd shaped, um, then you're starting to get into real physics and real mathemat mathematics, which is an area I you know, I do acoustics consultation. If I get into a space and it's like that, I'm like, I'm the wrong person for you. <laughs> you know, I can do what I hear and what I can measure easily. Uh, if it starts getting into really complex situations where the room is really odd and creating a lot of nodes everywhere, then it's time for somebody who's far more educated than me to step in and, you know, help uh, sort of do that. But you got to pay for that because you're paying for that person's experience. But in terms of, you know, getting comfortable in a room, in a live room, I cannot emphasize how much it is that you go there early and you learn how the system is put together. How is everything put together? In what order? If you, if you don't understand speakers, just do some basic reading on speaker design. Because speaker design has gone freaking radical with DSP capabilities now. Um, but understand the basics of speaker design and understanding how their system is wired together and in what way. Because there may be something in their system that, that somebody put in at some point to fix a problem that may in fact be creating a worse problem. You never know. And so it's often a good idea to go in. You don't have to, you're not in destruct mode, that you go in and you turn something off and listen to what's going on and listen to what's going on in the room. Play back things you're familiar with and listen to them in the room. And the key, particularly with mixers, is listen to things you're familiar with in different environments. If you're listening in different environments, you begin to understand you're training your ears. 
to understand what happens. And you put it on in your room, you're like, whoa, bass is really loud on this. Okay, well, there's a hint right there. You've got bass collection in your listening area. So you need to figure out how to deal with that and what's going on with that. So that, you know, simple things like that can really kind of gain a little perspective, but you got to spend time at it. It's not something you just walk in and slam, bam, thank you, man, we're done. You got to put a little effort into it. You got to think about what's going on in the room you're working in and what kind of equipment you're working on and where you are in the room. I mean, I love when they put mixing positions inside a room with a window to the venue. Let's, you know, as I call it, mixing in the box. You know, we have a couple of venues here in the Bay Area I just, I will not work at because I'm not out in the space with it. It's really hard for me to tell what's going on. You know, in the broadcast world, we have to do that. But, you know, in the live venue world, people who do that, theaters are really bad about that. Yeah. It's like, no, don't do that. Don't lock up the sound person in a room (laughs) (laughs) with no perspective of what's going on out there. So, and in those situations, it's really tough. You know, I've been known to stick my head out the window and listen, you know, or even um, just kind of spend some time with a pad that's hooked to a digital console, you know, an iPad walking around the room and I'll end up sitting in a chair out in the audience and mixing and listen. There's some overriding reason I need to be at the console. So one of the great things about digital. For sure. And and yeah, especially that these days you can, yeah, take that iPad and walk around the venue. It's, it's so beneficial. You know, I, I, I my own experience, I felt that way too. Like, you know, I always, I would always set up stuff at front of house as best as I could. And then, you know, I always walk the venue and just like listen to it during soundcheck, like, different spots of the room just to see like where what what things are sounding like in different areas and uh yeah you know there are definitely some venues that i can think of that have horrible front of house positions where there's like <laughs> you know overhead like overhangs above front of house I, I i remember i went on a cruise ship a few years ago and we went into like the main auditorium there and there, yeah it was literally like the sound guy was in like a glass box like glass mm-hmm. room and i was like how like they're not even hearing things there's glass in front of them like you know like so yeah, you do the best you can, and and you know obviously, it's helpful if the band's really good and the system's really good. Um, you may not have those things, you know, and that's the other thing is that I said it before. You have to recognize there are things in the world you cannot control, so you just do the best you can with it. And that that was probably you asked me what the important lesson was in live sound back in in my early days. That was the most important lesson. You, there are things in the world you have no control over. And you will get looks from people in the audience and you're like, sorry, nothing I can do about it. You know? Yeah. You know, you think about like, they always say like at movies, there's like a certain sweet spot or, you know, in every venue, there's a sweet spot, you know, orchestras, there's, there's like so many rows back in the center, you get that best sound and everywhere else is kind of going to get a little bit of a variation of that, you know? So it's, uh, it can't be perfect for everyone in the venue, but you have to do your best to to make it somewhat pleasing for everyone. <laughs> well, one of the best examples I ever give of exactly that extremity is I did a event a number of years ago in an underground tunnel. Basically, this was a winery in Napa that is in tunnels in a mountain. And the room is basically the shape of a giant Quonset hut. So it's a rounded ceiling with flat ends. And if they had put the band and me on one of the flat end walls, we probably could have made it work. But where they put me was on the side wall where all the low frequency collects, which is right where they put the stage. And I couldn't be out in the room because there were tables for this event. So I had to be right next to the band, which is even worse because I can't tell what's going on. So I did the best I could. 
But one of the things that weirded me out was I started walking around the venue and listening. And as I went along one of the flat walls out away from the band, the volume attenuated by 40 dB, literally. Wow. But when I got to the corner, there were all these people at a table and they were all looking at me angrily and I couldn't figure out why. And I walked over to the table and it was, the snare was like 115 dB in that <laughs> one spot. And it was like, wow, you know, and I, I have, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I, I have no control over it. And the, you know, the client would not work with me in terms of that arrangement. So I said, well, then it's going to be compromised and it will be what it's going to be. And I made sure that that was very clear with him up front. And interestingly, they did not hire me again. I hired a friend of mine for the following year and they did the same thing. And he told them the same thing. And I think finally, some years later, they finally moved it to the end of the, the Quonset hut where it's slightly better and a little controller, but you know, uh, more able to control, I should say, but it was still not lovely. So, so, you know, you have venues like that. You will have places like that. You will have situations like that. So, and again, it's, that's the other side of our industry is customer relations and learning how to deal with people and, you know, let them know, Hey, you know, this is not optimal and this will not be great. I will do the best I can. But if you get complaints, it's because it's beyond my control. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked definitely a lot about live sound, but one other thing that I wanted to talk about with you is the fact that when I was looking at your website, I was checking out all the services you offer. I know that you've done live sound. I know that you also have a studio, but you have a lot of diversity in the stuff that you do as well. Like it's not just the live sound or studio work. You, you do the acoustic consulting, you do stage teching, you do system design, that kind of stuff. And so I'm curious to know, like, you know, how did you get into, or why did you get into all these different areas of the audio industry? Was it just that like, that's kind of what fell in your lap at the time, or was it like out of necessity? Like what, what did that look like for you? Yes. And yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm a pretty mechanically inclined person. So I, I started my, my youth out of high school, framing houses and building. I still build furniture. I have a nice little wood shop next door. Um, so I have a pretty, a uh, good understanding of mechanics and things like that. And I'm, I'm very meticulously organized, perhaps not quite, you know, OCD, but, you know, approaching that. Um, and that, that in the early days in the studio, the manager recognized that. And, and I became the de facto facilities manager. I would do all of the redesign, you know, if they wanted to make changes to the studios, we worked as a team and I put the work together and got it done and blah, blah, blah. So I learned a lot about acoustics. I learned a lot about the way studios are put together. I had a, a really good friend whom I'm still in great contact with, Bob Gerdoulis, who was our tech at Music Annex. And Bob was one of those people of infinite wisdom about how electronics work. So I learned as much from him as I could learn because I'm not formally trained in any of this. Um, but I understand how things, you know, over the years I've learned how these things work, how digital works, how communication protocols work. I can even do basic programming. Don't ever ask me to program something complicated. You will regret that. But, you know, um, you know, and a part of that is out of necessity. Um, one of the great things I'm going to, I'm going to do a little tangent here. One of the great things about the time frame that I entered working music annex was we were on the cusp of the digital change and I'm in Silicon Valley where it started. So music annex as a studio were very early adopters of digital. And I was a very early adopter of digital. I mean, I digital design was two buildings away. So I got to be friends with Chris Bach, one of the founders, and he handed me a 
a digital design version three hardware and software and said, here, break this. <laughs> so I was a tester for them in 1994. So I've been working in Pro Tools since 1993. And, you know, I had to learn. I didn't know any of this stuff. I was never trained on computers. And so I looked at the people around me who were being in Silicon Valley. That was a lot of people I have friends and played music with were all techie people. So I just tried to absorb as much information as possible because it became pretty apparent after the dot-com crash in 2001 that you had to be very diversified. And that in our business, that is crucial if you want to survive. You have to have different skills peripheral to recording because honestly, music recording is not a profitable business and even less so now. So I had to find ways to make money. I did very well in my in the 90s at the Annex. I mean, it bought me a house, it built a studio. But when things changed, I had to learn a new set of skills. I had to find new ways to make money. I moved back into live sound because at least it was paying a little bit of money. And I had the digital console skills because I worked on digital consoles in the studio. And very few people in the live sound industry actually understood digital consoles at that time. And in addition to that, I'd worked with Avid. So when Scoville and Avid developed the uh, SC48, um, as a console, digital console, I understood how that thing worked immediately because they basically took their ideas from Euphonics, which they acquired. And Euphonics was a company I worked with multiple times. I worked on Euphonics consoles. So to answer your question, it's both. Things fell in my lap, but I also recognized, oh, these are kind of valuable skills that people will pay for. So it was opportunistic as well. Mm -hmm. And in our industry, it's always, always been, you sort of have to be a bit of a chameleon. You have to kind of change with the times. You cannot stick to one style of music. You cannot stick to one approach. You cannot stick to just doing recording. You have to do multiple things. And that's what drove, you know, being able to survive. So now with, you know, 30 years accumulation of experience, I've entered a whole new world where I'm putting together broadcast studios for high-end corporations like Apple. And I was just in Arizona for three weeks, putting together Pro Tools and S6 consoles for Arizona State University and assembling systems, working as a contractor for another company, because I understand how to do that stuff. I've done it so much in my life. It's intuitive at this point. And even with computer changes, I have to learn, you know, the changes with Apple. I have to learn the changes with PCs, which are not my favorite computers to work on, but you know, I have to understand how to work on them and at least understand when problems come up. And that, that kind of brings back something else you were asking, you know, what is one of the skills you have to be a good troubleshooter. It doesn't matter if you're in the studio or the live world, live world, you have to be a very fast troubleshooter. You got to understand everything. And that's why I was saying you have to learn the system. Make sure you understand the system you're working on, because if something goes wrong, you need to figure out if it's the stage you or something in the system, you don't know where it is. So troubleshooting is extremely critical to being a, a either live sound engineer or studio. You have to be meticulous in troubleshooting because otherwise you can go down a rabbit hole that's a nightmare. For sure. Yeah, and you're certainly, if you're not going to be good at troubleshooting in a live sound situation, that's not going to work out for you very well. <laughs> you're not going to stop the show in the middle of it and say, hey, everyone, I got, I got to figure this out, you know? like. <laughs> no, I could tell many stories about situations where I was like, 
what the heck is going on here? Um, but you know, being able to deal with it. Uh, okay. I'll give you one short story. Did an event outdoors at Stanford in the spring and the day was very pleasant and warm, but that night the temperature really dropped and all this humidity was in the air suddenly came out and was all over the stage. I mean, literally the stage was wet and there was no cover on the stage because we were doing an evening show and we knew the weather was going to be good. In the middle of it, the bass player's amp went out and I was like, okay, something's going on there. Now I had anticipated a potential problem with that by having him already set up to go into his monitor directly. We had a direct and we had the amp. In fact, the direct was coming off the amp. So I had my tech just go out and we coordinated and very quickly in a few seconds, he swapped the direct out from the amp to a, a DI you know, box and we put him back in. So he was only gone for a few seconds on stage and I had to quickly dial up a sound. Now this is an example of being prepared in advance and understanding kind of where your problem is. So I pulled the amp off and had my tech do sound and I look inside the amp and there's moisture inside of it. I can see it through the venting holes in the side. So I turned to my other assistant who had on a down coat and I said, here, put this under your arm under the coat for a while. So he did. He walked around for 20 minutes with that way. And the bass player was, you know, he wasn't happy because his sound was really good before. And he was very happy about that. And now it was kind of because it was coming out of a small monitor. And I had him pull the amp out and we plugged it in. You know, the show's still going on all this time. Pulled the amp out and I turned it on. It came right up. It had just gotten moisture in it, and one of the thermal switches in it had decided to shut it down. So we covered it, ran back over, and did the quick you know, hand signal swap, got him right back where he was, and the show went on. And that's the kind of stuff you have to be ready to do. You can't him and haw about that. you got to do it, especially harder if you're by yourself and you don't have A1s or A2s or A3s to help you out. For sure. Then you got, you know, you got to deal with that problem yourself and figure it out and figure out how you're going to deal with it. So... That's just an example of the kind of weird things that can happen, you know. But you're absolutely right. It's all about that preparation that made it possible for you to make that switch quickly with the bass player. Exactly. You know, I, I think about years ago, I was on a tour with Kiss and they like there was so many precautions made to make sure that if anything went down during the show, it was it was quick and easy to fix. There was, you know, Paul Stanley was using a wireless mic, but if that wireless mic went out, there was a wired mic on the stage ready to go. You know, just sitting there the whole time or even with the drums, like there was extra snare drums like off to the side of the, of the riser ready to go just in case you got to throw one on. You know, if, it's, if a skin breaks like stuff like that, really, I mean, you, you obviously don't want to have to use those things, but hey, they, they happen. And when they happen, you're going to be super glad that you were prepared and you put the extra work into making sure that it was ready to go because, hey, it's going to it's going to save your job and save the show sometimes, you know, so uh, well, it's the same with, you know, putting monitors on stage, even though everybody's using in ears. Yep. You know, it's part of it is, is that, uh, you know, in a bigger situation like that, where somebody's using in ears, I put monitors on stage just so they feel a little bit of the energy, but they're there for a reason, because something goes haywire with the in ears. Um, you know, they've got a backup system, they've got something going on. And I can remember guys complaining, well, they have in ears, I go, yeah, and what if they go down? Then what? Yep. You got it. You got a dead stage, and that's not good. That's a bad situation. Of course, of course. Well, I, I love it, and you know, I love just your your outlook um, on not only the live stuff, but you know, when we're talking about that diversity and like you know how you got into it, why you got into it. Um, 
I'm curious to get your thoughts. I, you may have already kind of you kind of already have answered this, I guess. But, you know, the concept of niching down and, you know, I feel like these days people are like there's so many people online saying like, OK, if you're going to get into this, you want to record a band or you want to get into engineering like you want to be known as like the metal guy or you want to be known as a country guy or whatever. And it's like very like there's a lot of talk about niching down to like a specific genre of music and becoming known for that one thing. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on like, can people survive in niching or is it, is it necessary to have that diversity? I, I think it's necessary. And, and I'll give you my reasons why is because I saw this very thing happen in the early nineties after the, the, the metal decade, you know, the glam metal decade of the eighties, a lot of engineers who only knew how to do that were suddenly found themselves in very awkward situations because they had a whole new range of bands. You had, you know, grunge as an example, grunge was coming up. That's a very different mindset than glam metal Has a very different rudimentary kind of organic quality to it. And a lot of these guys that were polished uh, could not make that transition and did not survive. A lot of them I know went into the live world because that was where they could survive. I, I honestly think niching down, which is an interesting way of putting that. I've never heard it put that way is a really bad idea. And the reason I think it's a bad idea is that one, all niche genres die, they come and go. They may come back, but they'll be different when they come back. Like funk started coming back in, in the last five years is, is a big thing. It's very different than it was in the 70s. Um, and also being diversified and recording a lot of things makes you a better engineer because you really understand things differently. It also does something that is not technical, which is it expands your creativity side. It allows you to be more artistic and bring in different influences. And that is what makes music unique from different recordings and ideas. A lot of times it's a mix, a mixing and mashing of styles. And that may be not only from the band compositionally and playing wise, but that may be from the engineer too, who's bringing different perspectives. Um, good example of this is there's a band of extremely popular in California and Southern U.S. and Mexico called Los Tigres del Norte. I've worked with them a lot over the years. And Jim Dean, my good friend Jim Dean, was their producer for many years. And I used to work with him at Music Annex. They, in fact, were kind of in some ways responsible for the the creation of Music Annex because they were one of the first bands that our, our owner, David Porter, worked with. And they made money. That was helped build the studio. But Jim was their producer and engineer in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And we did a record called Jefes de Jefes. And one of the things Jim did with that is the music they do is always the same. It's the, you know, doom, 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 you know, in three, kind of based on German music, um, papa music a little bit. And it's, uh, you know, corridos, payados, and, um, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the, uh, the actual third style that it's these particular stories that they would tell about drug runners and things like that. But the music was generally kind of the same with a different story. And Jim was kind of tired of that. He's like, you know, you guys are huge. You're influencers. Let's influence everybody. So he had them record their traditional stuff through Fender amps using rock drums. He put a different kind of slant on it with a little touch of country. Well, that is their biggest selling album to date. And it changed the music world that they were influencing because now everybody wanted that sound. 
And that's what I mean by being diversified. Jim had done a lot of stuff. He's like me. He's recorded jazz and rock and classical and Mexican bands and, you know, folk bands and you, you name it, a lot of different things. And the more diversified you are, the more your skill set is. So niching down, and I see this happening a lot in rap music, um, which I, I honestly feel like is making rap music monotonous in the same is people are niching down and not looking at other influences. And an exception to that is Kendrick Lamar. I mean, the man is brilliant at that kind of thing. He brings a lot of different sounds into it. He brings a lot of different ideas. And he's always looking for something new and interesting and different instead of doing the same old, same old. And that's that's art. That's true art right there. Yeah, I love that. that that's, a, that's a great answer and a great perspective on it. And I couldn't agree more with you because... Yeah, right. There's like, you know, you can be known for something now and who knows what that genre is going to be in five years from now. And, you know, if, if your skills are going to be able to even compete with what people are doing five years from now, you know, and, you know, I think about, um, you know, for myself personally, like I work on a lot of like pop punk kind of style music and now like pop punk is kind of coming back, but it's like very rap influenced. There's a lot of like electronic elements in there. So it's like, you know, if you were just so focused on only rock music and you've ignored rap and all the electronic side of things, then you wouldn't be able to do well these days with that style of music, you know? So exactly. you have to, you have to constantly be evolving, learning new technology, keeping diverse. And, you know, whether that's, I think that diversity can come in so many different ways, whether it is different services, like what you, what you offer, or even being diverse as far as the genres of music you work on, um, or, a combination of those two, you know, like having different services and different genres and all that kind of stuff. You know, the more diverse you can be, the the broader of a net you can cast to keep busy. And the, and the broader your knowledge of equipment, too, because, you know, the same equipment may not uh, work the same way with a different genre and a different need. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about in the live world, song to song, it changes. And you have to be an active mixer and understand that a faster song has a different need than a slow song. They have very different needs and you, you really want to be a good engineer mixing both live and studio. You need to understand that concept. You need to understand that a certain style has a particular sound. How did they achieve that? Why is that happening? So it's a, it's a, it's a cultural background too. It's a cultural knowledge. You know, it's, you know, I want to do uh, uh, a punk, uh, you know, hillbilly kind of record where it, it's, you know, a little thrash core and a little bit, you know, uh, 50s hillbilly music and a little bit, you know, kind of surf music. I have a friend, uh, Dijam Correa, a band out of L.A., Gail Elliott. He he does amazing mixes of things. Very cool. And he's kind of a connoisseur of that. He, he goes and learns how and why that was recorded that way and why. And often, you know, it's in older materials just simply because that's all they had, you know. Yeah, I love it. Well, I love I love how you circled back to the idea of being an active mixer. And, you know, I think that, that that does bring it around to a full circle moment of just, you know, constantly active, active mixing involves being like participating. It involves learning. It involves like not just sitting around, you know, waiting for things to come to you or just like letting things take care of themselves. It's like being proactive about it. So I love that you brought it full circle there. And uh, I feel like that's a great spot to wrap up. But um, Chris, if, if people want to learn more about you and follow the work that you do online or maybe even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can go to blue7audio.com. That's all spelled out on one word, blue7audio.com. 
and they can reach me through that. They can see a list of work. If they want to explore what I do musically, my band is called New Sun, S-U-N, and that's new-sun.com, or find us on Bandcamp, uh, where I put most of our material these days. But we are on streaming services as well, so we're available out there. And um, that way you can explore both my engineering and my my compositional side because I do all my own engineering, my own mixing, producing, et cetera, et cetera, for better or for worse. Um, and those are kind of the two places to really go at this point to get information about me. And And I encourage people, go ahead and reach out to me. If I don't get back to you right away, I will. Awesome. I will respond. So Love it. I love when engineers on the show encourage people to, to reach out. I think it's so great. And I'm always curious to know how many people actually do it. <laughs> you know, it, it comes in waves. Um, and it's usually instigated by something I may have put out. Uh, I do have, uh, if you go to YouTube and look up uh, Blue 7 Audio, except this time the 7 is a 7 as opposed to spelled out. Uh, you can see some of the videos. Because I used to do... Um, Plugin reviews for Waves and Plugin Alliance. I have a long-term relationship with Plugin Alliance and some of those folks. I I'm way overdue to have done some more things. Other things have been going on in the life, so I haven't had a chance to do a few more. But I'm actually thinking about because um, I get this request uh, doing a few short uh, mixing and mix approach things because everybody's got their own way of doing it, and there is no one true set way of doing things. So absolutely cool. Well, definitely I'll uh, include links in the show notes so people can access all the all the good stuff you're putting out there. Cool. So that was my interview with Christopher Scott Cooper, and I really enjoyed that conversation. I found it very fascinating, and I thought he offered some really great advice on that topic of diversification. And I love what he was saying near the end here of just, you know, if you pigeonhole yourself into one style of music, you're really doing yourself a disservice because you're not learning about all the other technology, all the other skills that go on aside from that one genre of music. And if that genre of music ever changes, well, you might end up losing a lot of gigs to people who are adapting and who are pushing themselves to constantly learn. So, you know, I think that Chris's advice here is accurate, that you should always be trying to learn new things and trying to diversify your skills and offer different services too, especially if you're getting started. You know, you have to fill up your calendar and you can't just be that person that does a specific niche genre and there's no work coming through because it's so niche, right? So definitely all of the advice that Chris shared here about that topic, I think is super relevant and definitely something you should think about. So I hope that you found that episode helpful and that you were able to take a lot of great advice from it. I certainly know that I was and I hope that you did too. Now, if you did enjoy the podcast, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com on that website. I've got so many great resources designed to help musicians and home studio engineers like you with creating pro sounding recordings from home. And one resource that you definitely want to check out while you're there is called The Mixing Mindset. And that is my book where I break down the process of mixing step by step and give you perspective on what to be listening for, what tools to be using, what settings to be adjusting based on what you're actually hearing. This isn't just mixing by numbers. Instead, it's all about helping you understand what's going on in your specific songs so that you can get the best results for your music. So definitely check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode, guys. I hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you got tons of great value from it. And I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. 
And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.